The title of this session is Rebuilding a Marriage After an Affair. Good morning to all of you. Uh, you tell me if the uh, amplifier is coming across too loud. Last night in our room, I thought maybe it was turned up just a bit too much because I have a built-in amplifier, and uh, I don't want to blast you out of the building. You know, for a number of years, I came to California about once every two years when Skip would invite me uh, to come out to share in this particular conference. But uh, about six months ago, uh, we decided that we liked California so much that we moved to California, and now we're living just above Los Angeles in the Santa Clarita area, and I'm teaching at the Master's College. And so uh, we have this kind of weather every day of the year. We lived in Pennsylvania, of course, and uh, we just moved from Pennsylvania this year <clears throat> at a time when they had a horrible winter. So we got away. The last few winters haven't been bad, but this winter's been pretty bad. But it's been uh, good to be in California and to enjoy this weather and to get to know the people here and serve Christ here. About 10 days ago, I started getting some uh, cartoons from some of my friends I had three of my friends who gave me the same cartoon, and so I figured it must be pretty good if all three of them gave me the same cartoon. It's a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon, and in the first frame you have Calvin sitting under a tree, and Hobbes comes up to him and says, what you doing? And Calvin says, well, I'm getting rich. Really? Yep, I'm writing a self-help book. There's a huge market for this stuff. First, you convince people there's something wrong with them. That's easy because advertising has already conditioned people to feel insecure about their weight, looks, social status, sex appeal, and so on. Next, you convince them that the problem is not their fault and that they're victims of larger forces. That's easy because it's what people anyway want to believe. Nobody wants to be responsible for his own situation. And then finally... You convince them that with your expert advice and encouragement, they can conquer their problem and be happy. Ingenious! What problem will you help people solve? Their addiction to self-help books. <laughs> My book is called, this is great, Shut Up and Stop Whining. <laughs> How to do something with your life besides think about yourself. That's the subtitle. And then Hobbes says, you probably should wait for the advance before you buy anything. And Calvin says, the trouble is, if my prog program works, I won't be able to write a sequel. Well, Calvin wanted to write a self-help book that would and the need for all other self-help books. In this conference, during these few days, we're not interested in giving you self-help principles, but we are interested in giving you God's principles for dealing with the 
various problems that are connected with sex in this world. You know, Dr. Ed Wheat said that about 40% of the people in the United States who are married have sexual problems. That's about four out of every ten problems. I don't know how he came up with those statistics, and I don't know if they're accurate. But I do know from my own counseling experience that almost every couple that comes to me with marriage problems, somewhere along the line, they express the fact that they're struggling in the area of sex. And so as Christian counselors, because we believe that in the Bible we have everything we need for living and for godliness, which includes the area of sex, we need to be ready to give people help when they come with sexual problems. Now what I'm going to be talking about today and tomorrow is rebuilding a marriage after an adulterous affair. And I want to begin by presenting to you some biblical principles that ought to guide us as we work with people in this situation. What I want to do is give you, at the beginning, nine basic biblical presuppositions that ought to provide the parameters within which you'll work and attempt to help people who need to rebuild their marriage after an adulterous affair. First of all, one of the principles that I operate out of is that marriage is a divine institution. And since marriage is a divine institution, it is God and God alone who really knows how a marriage should work and what will make a marriage work. Secondly, marriage is intended to be permanent. And that, of course, influences me as I attempt to help people who are struggling with their marriage problems. I'm convinced that God hates divorce and that marriage is intended to be permanent. Third, I operate from the presupposition that all sexual relationships outside of marriage are sinful. Fourth, I also operate from the principle that adultery proceeds from the heart. That the real problem when you have Adultery is that there's something wrong in the heart. Fifth, adultery is a serious offense and leads to serious unpleasant consequences. Last night in our session, we looked at some of the unpleasant consequences of sexual immorality in the Word of God. Proverbs 6.32 says that the person who commits adultery or is involved in sexual immorality destroys his own soul. And there are a lot of consequences that are very serious that are mentioned in the Word of God. Sixth, while adultery is a sin and should be avoided, it is not the unpardonable sin. It may be forgiven. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 are cases in point. Seven. God's revealed will for cases of adultery is repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Proverbs 28, 13, 1 John 1, 9, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, Luke 17, 3 through 10, and God's example with Israel to whom he said he was married in the Old Testament. When Israel committed adultery again and again, God 
forgave them and they were reconciled to him. Eighth, divorce never completely solves all the problems. It usually creates new ones. And so when I'm working with people, I'm working from that presupposition, which I believe is a biblical presupposition, that divorce never completely solves all the problems. It usually creates new ones. Malachi 2, 13 through 16, Matthew 5, 31, 32, Matthew 19, 9, Romans 7, 2 and 3, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11, and Proverbs 13, 15. And I imagine that you got all of those down. I saw someone here last night with a little laptop computer taking notes while Jay was speaking, and I wondered if he was getting all of it down. Every word. Nine, a lack of repentance from and continuance in adultery are grounds for church discipline and divorce. A lack of repentance from and continuance in adultery are grounds for church discipline and divorce. Matthew 18, 15 through 17, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13, Matthew 19, 9. All right, those are the basic presuppositions, and they're very important because that's my perspective as somebody comes to me who has had a problem in their marriage involving adultery. Now, having delineated these nine basic principles, I want to go on in this session to discuss the counseling from the offendee's perspective. And by the offendee, I mean the adulterer or the adulteress. What are some of the problems and issues that you'll face as far as the offendee is concerned and I'm not saying by that that uh, the uh, offendee is the only one who has made any mistakes. I'm just saying the offendee is the only one who has committed adultery. And so I want to look at the offendee. And then having looked at the offendee, if we have time, I want to uh, look at some of the counseling issues that you usually have to deal with when you're working with the offended. And then tomorrow... I want to give you a 12-step program for recovery. Now, uh, it's my own 12-step program. (laughs) I didn't get it from someone else. A 12-step generic program for counseling the offendee and offender as a unit. Now, let's first of all focus on understanding and counseling the offendee. When counseling the offendee, I think it's helpful to understand the factors that contributed to the adultery. And these factors may be broken down into two categories. First of all, there are the circumstantial factors. And then secondly, there are the primary Factors or the primary causes of the adultery. Now, when I speak of the circumstantial factors, I'm referring to the context in which the adultery often occurs. I'm referring to the internal and external pressures that the adulterous person is facing. People don't live in a vacuum. 
and people don't usually commit adultery in a vacuum. What they do is usually done in association with something that is happening outside of them or inside of them. And I'm convinced that it's biblical and helpful for us as counselors to try to understand the context in which they are operating. Now, please don't misunderstand me. What I'm going to describe are circumstantial factors. They may not and must not be regarded as causes of sexual immorality. They are merely external or internal circumstances that are often, though not always, present when infidelity occurs. They provide the context in which adultery is more likely to occur. They do not make a person commit adultery and cannot be used as an excuse for what has occurred. Nevertheless, I think it's important for us to understand that context. I think it's important for us to understand the external and internal pressures a person is experiencing if we're to give appropriate counsel to them. When our Lord gave counsel to people when he was on earth, he knew them and their circumstances. John 2, 24 and 25 says, He didn't need that any should testify to him of that which was in man, for he knew what was in man. And so when he spoke to the woman at the well, he knew all about her. When he spoke to Nicodemus, he knew all about him. And he spoke to them in the context with full awareness of the context in which they lived. And so his counsel was suited to them appropriately in terms of their context. And when he ascended and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, he became the counselor to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And again and again in the counsel which he gave to the people in Revelation 2 and 3, he said, I know, I know, I know, I know. To the church at Smyrna, he said, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know you're being persecuted. To the church at Thyatira, he said, I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne is. I know you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. And when he gave counsel to the other churches, he did similar things. I know, I know, I know. He knew the internal as well as the external pressures of the various people's to whom he was speaking. And when Paul wrote his counseling epistles, which most of his epistles were, he gave evidence of the same practice. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he knew about them. He knew about their problems. He knew about the context in which they lived. He had been there. And he had received information from someone about the situation. And when he counseled Timothy, he did so with an understanding of the kind of internal and external pressures that Timothy was facing. He didn't counsel in a vacuum. He understood Timothy. He understood his pressures. And he suited what he said to the context in which he was living. And I believe that's what we ought to do with our counselees as well. Now, what are some of the circumstantial factors that are often present in the life of a person who commits adultery. Well, here are some of them. People who commit adultery often, often complain of unsatisfactory sex relations. 
It's very rare that I've ever counseled anyone who had committed adultery who didn't complain of unsatisfactory sex relations. On one or two occasions, that's been true. Second, they complain about a lack of spousal support and encouragement. They complain about an inattentive mate. Third, they sometimes come from a family that has a history of affairs. The research seems to demonstrate that people who come from a family, and of course the Bible I think supports that. We read in the Old Testament of um, Ahaziah, who the mother of one of the kings who was his counselor to do evil. We read in Ephesians 6.4 of parents provoking their children to wrath, and I think they do that by example as well as by what they do to their children. And so people who commit adultery often, not always, but often come from a family that has a history of affairs. People who commit adultery often have a disregard for authority and for accountability. I mentioned that last night, that when I've worked with people who have been enslaved to sexual immorality, I have never yet found a person who has really been open and honest with others about his problem. Someone who has sought biblical help from someone else. Again and again, I've had people tell me, you're the first person I ever talked to about this. They haven't made themselves accountable to anyone. Still further, people who commit adultery are often dissatisfied or bored with other areas of life. They're looking for reassurance, quick pleasure, something that would be exciting. Another circumstantial factor is that they often have a sense of what is called entitlement. I deserve better than I'm getting. Research seems to indicate that as a man's income increases, so does the possibility of adultery. Because as his income increases, he develops more and more of this sense of entitlement that I deserve this and I deserve that. Then too, the fact that promiscuity is more prevalent in our society and the stigma of sexual immorality has been removed is another factor in our day. Along with that is the breakdown of the extended family. We're living in a much more mobile society. Used to be that even though people weren't Christians, uh, there, there was some restraint that came from the fact that you live close to mom and dad, you live close to your uncles and aunts, And you'll live close to other people, and other people knew you pretty well, and they might find out, and so there were the external restraints. Now, by and large, in many situations, that's gone because we move so frequently. I was talking to somebody recently, and they told me that they had lived in six places in less than six years, and that's not all that uncommon. Then there is the matter of changing attitudes among professing Christians. The attitudes of Christians toward sexual immorality is changing. It's not regarded nearly as seriously as it used to be regarded. Then also, 
Research seems to indicate that adultery is more common among people who had early adolescent sexual activity. If someone had early sexual activity, it's more likely that he'll commit or she'll commit adultery. It's also likely to be committed by people who enjoy testing the limits. They enjoy living on the edge. And you'll work with some people uh, who, you know, they do it. And uh, it's almost as if they're trying to see how much they can get away with. And there's some excitement that comes uh, from fooling other people. It's also frequently committed by those who get bored quickly, who have itchy feet, who are constantly moving from one thing to another. They get excited about one thing, and then they get bored, and so they're constantly moving on to something else. It often occurs at a major life transition point in a person's life. I mean, you check it out many times. Uh, there is a major transition point in the person's life, and uh, perhaps they're at that point where they reach the top of the ladder, they realize they're not going any uh, further as far as their job is concerned, or maybe the children have left, or something else has occurred, some major transition point, and uh, all of a sudden uh, there's a sort of vacuum in their life, and they look around for something that will provide some pleasure or happiness. People who commit adultery have a lot of unmet desires and expectations, and they often have come to the place where they think that their desires will never be met in their present situation. For a time, they're trying to change their mate or change their situation, and they have hope that their situation or their mate may change. And then they come to the place where they throw in the towel and think there's no use, and it's always going to be this way, and they open the door for someone that comes along who seems to be sweet and nice and gentle and respectful and all of that, and they enter into an adulterous relationship. And sometimes adultery is committed as an attempt to punish the other person for what he or she is doing or isn't doing, or it's an attempt to manipulate the other person to change. And the last thing in terms of circumstantial factors is that the person who commits adultery has elevated his desires to the status of needs or demands. It's not just that they desire something, they need it. And they deserve it. And they demand it. And if they don't get it, then they start looking around for someone or something else. Now, those are some of the circumstantial factors I emphasize they're just circumstantial factors. They do not excuse sexual immorality. They do not make a person commit sexual immorality. Let's turn from these circumstantial factors to the primary causes. And I think the primary causes may be looked at from a number of different perspectives. First of all, they may be looked at from a perspective on sin that is frequently delineated in the Bible. You find it in Matthew, the 15th chapter, and verse 19, where Jesus said, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, 
fornications. Out of the heart come adultery and fornication. In Matthew 12, 33 through 35, Jesus changes the illustration, but he says essentially the same thing. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree rotten and its fruit rotten, for the tree is known by its fruit. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. Jesus said, if you've got bad fruit, the problem is not primarily with the bad fruit. The problem is with the tree. And if you want to produce good fruit, you've got to do something about the tree that produces that bad fruit. When applied to the bad fruit of adultery, Jesus is saying there's something wrong in the heart of that person, and you've got to work on the heart. James describes the basic problem of the adulterer from the same perspective. We looked at it really carefully last night in James 1, 13 through 16, where James says, Every man is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed by his own lusts. By his own cravings, by his own intense desires. James is saying the problem is not out there. It's not what's happening around the person. It's what's happening in the person. And you have the same emphasis in James 4 and verse 8, where James tells us not only clean up our hands, but to purify our hearts. He says, clean up your hands, but then he says, purify your hearts. The problem is not just... With the hands, the problem is with the heart. And Paul emphasizes this same perspective on why people do the things they do in a number of passages. In Galatians 5, 19 through 21, he talks about the deeds of the flesh. And some of the deeds of the flesh, according to the Apostle Paul, are immorality, impurity, and sensuality. But before Paul talks about the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, he talks about the desires of the flesh in Galatians 5 and verse 16. You do what you do because you desire what you desire. And if you deal with the desire, you're changing the deeds. So he's saying, yeah, all of these things are true in terms of what you do, but you got to go deeper and realize that you perform these deeds because you have certain desires. He talks about the desires of the flesh. So he's saying the real problem, the basic problem, the primary problem is in the heart. And in Romans 1.24, he says exactly the same thing. He says, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to immorality. That is, God took away the restraints and he allowed them to do what their hearts wanted to do. Their hearts wanted immorality. God took away the restraints and he allowed them to do what they always wanted to do. The problem, again, God says, is a problem of the heart. And you find the same perspective on adultery reiterated in many places in Proverbs. 
In the book of Proverbs, the word heart is used 78 times in 31 chapters. In the book of Proverbs, while it deals a lot with our actions, talks a lot about our hearts. 31 chapters, and in 31 chapters, 78 times. It talks about the heart. Incidentally, the word heart is used 762 times in the Bible. Now, not all of those times have to do with the non-physical heart, but many of them do. Christianity, you see, is a heart religion. Romans 10.9 says, if you believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead. The Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. The heart is to be regarded as a gigantic reservoir from which all of the waters of our life proceed. If the water is bad that comes out of our lives, it's bad because something is wrong with the reservoir. You don't fool around primarily with the water. You get back to the reservoir. You clean up the reservoir and you clean up the rivers, the channels, the water that comes out of the heart. Proverbs 6.25 says, Don't desire a woman in your heart. talks about desire and where you desire her. You desire her in your heart. And Proverbs 7.25 says, Don't let your heart turn to her ways. Deal with your heart. So one perspective in terms of the primary cause of adultery is that there's something wrong in the heart of that person and you need to help them to clean up their heart. But another perspective on the problem of adultery is that we can look at adultery as idolatry. In Colossians 3 and verse 5, Paul lists five specific sins. Three of them refer to sexual immorality. He talks about immorality, impurity, and passion. And two of them include sexual immorality. He talks about evil desire and or greed or covetousness. And the Tenth Commandment includes... Adultery, immorality, as part of covetousness, it says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. And so in Colossians 3 and verse 5, Paul is talking about sexual immorality, at least in part. And he ends that verse by saying, after he's listed these sins, that these sins, I think in general, or if not the first four, at least the last, greed... He says, it amounts to idolatry. And so he's suggesting that one way of viewing the adulterer or the adulteress is to view them as an idolater. In Ephesians 5 and verse 5, you have the same picture. He gives three specific sins there, two of which relate mainly to sexual immorality. He talks about the immoral or the impure person. And the other sin is more than sexual immorality, but it includes it. For he closes by saying, the man who fits this description is an idolater. Now, Stephen Chonick in his book, The Existence and the Attributes of God, has a powerful statement about the nature of sin. He says, all sin is really 
self-worship. All sin, he says, is really self-idolatry. Where we elevate ourselves, our desires, our cravings, our interests, to the place where they're more important than God. We're more important. Satisfying us, pleasing us, is more important than pleasing God. And John Calvin says that the heart is a veritable factory of idolatries. Calvin says we're constantly producing idols. Things that replace God. We worship them. We desire them. We serve them. We look to them for satisfaction, for strength, for sustenance in life rather than to God. And that's idolatry. And the adulterer or adulteress comes to the place where satisfying his own cravings is more important to him than pleasing God or doing what God wants. He's worshiping. He's serving his own lusts rather than serving God. And so, when we're dealing with somebody involved in sexual immorality, one way of looking at it is we're dealing with a person who is an idolater. And then let me mention some other biblical perspectives from which we may view the causes of the sin of adultery. These are perspectives presented to us in the book of Proverbs. Now, to this point, as we've been trying to understand the causes of adultery, we've focused on motivational factors. What's going on in the heart? The book of Proverbs presents it in a more holistic way. It does not ignore this matter of the heart, because I've already mentioned that 78 times in the book of Proverbs it talks about the heart. But it goes beyond that. In the first seven chapters of the book of Proverbs, one of the primary themes is this matter of sexual immorality. There are two whole chapters that are devoted to sexual immorality in Proverbs 1 through 7. Chapter 5 and chapter 7. And in those two chapters... There are almost 90 verses which deal specifically with sexual immorality. There are 202 verses in the first seven chapters. And of those 202 verses, almost 90 of them deal with the subject of sexual immorality. I think the two greatest books in the world on the subject of sex are the book of Proverbs and the book of Song of Solomon. Now, as I studied Proverbs, I found that this book really lays open for us a holistic approach to the causes of adultery. We don't have time to look at all of it, but let me just throw out for you, just from the chapter 5, as you go through chapter 5, this is what the book says about why people commit Adultery, get involved in sexual immorality. Verse 1, they get involved because they fail to pay attention to God's wisdom. Verse 2, they get involved because they fail to seek God's understanding. Verse 3, they get involved because they lack discretion, which comes from not paying attention to God's instruction. Verse 3, 
they get involved because they fail to talk about the right things, which means they talk about the wrong things. Verse 4, they listen to the seductive voices of the ungodly. Verse 4, they associate with sensual, pleasure-oriented people. Verse 4, they're short-sighted. They fail to think about the consequences of adultery. Verses 4 through 6 takes it to the heart level, and it talks about the fact that people commit adultery because of unbelief. They do not believe what God says. They do not believe the warnings of God and the warnings of life, and that's why they commit adultery. Verses 7, 10 through 13 say they commit adultery because they fail to listen to godly instruction and godly admission. They hate it. They spurn reproof. Verses 12 and 13, the same, they ignore and despise instruction and reproof. Verses 15 through 19, they commit adultery because they're inattentive to their own marriage. They fail to appreciate the mate they already have. Verse 20, they desire for someone or something different. There's that wanting something new or something different. Verse 20, they commit adultery because they have a grass is greener on the other side of the fence mentality. They have unrealistic expectations of what illicit sex can do. Verse 21, they have a lack of God consciousness. They forget who God is and what God is, that God sees everything. And verses 22 and 23, they fail to understand or believe the bewitching and slaving nature of sin. Now that's what the book of Proverbs chapter 5 says about the primary causes of adultery. And these themes are repeated again and again uh, throughout the first seven chapters of Proverbs. So, what it's saying is that people commit adultery because they failed to put off the wrong kind of desires, thoughts, and behaviors, and because they failed to put on the right kind of desires, thoughts, and behaviors. They focus on the wrong things rather than the right things. They think about the wrong things rather than the right things. They don't put off the wrong desires and replace them with godly desires. They allow themselves to look at wrong things rather than godly things. So there you have three ways of conceptualizing the primary causes of adultery. In reality, they're not really three ways. They're one way that you can view from a number of different perspectives. You can look at it as a heart problem. You can look at it as an idolatry problem. Or you can take the, the holistic perspective of the book of Proverbs and look at it as something that involves the heart, But it also involves your thoughts, it involves your behavior, it involves your conduct, it involves your inner and your outer man. And I believe as we're working with people, we need to pay attention to all of these perspectives. Now, there are two things that are crystal clear from this cursory overview of the causes of adultery. One is that God will not allow the adulterer to play the blame game. Perhaps he may have experienced many of the external or internal pressures that we mentioned earlier. But even if that is true, the scripture simply will not allow the adulterer to blame his infidelity on someone or something else or even on his own psychological condition. The Bible will not. Allow him to do that. Or us to do that. 
It's true that we may and should sympathize with the person who has experienced difficult circumstance. We need to sympathize with them. But we must never condone or approve or excuse the person's infidelity as if, given his circumstances, he could do nothing else. The Bible will not allow us to do that. And second, God simply will not allow the person who has committed adultery to treat it lightly. It's true that the adulterer may be forgiven and may be restored, but God will not allow him to make light of his sin. Now, what are some of the important counseling issues that must be considered as you work with the offendee? Well, here are some of them. One of the issues has to do with the details of disclosing or confessing the adulterous affair. What about disclosing or confessing the adulterous affair? Sometimes it's already been disclosed to some people. But there are times in my counseling when somebody has come to me and the wife doesn't even know. At least he's never told her. Or the pastor doesn't know. Or the children don't know. Or other people don't know. Now, there are several questions about disclosure. I'll talk about a couple of them today and then I'm going to expand on some of this tomorrow. To whom should he confess or disclose his sexual immorality? Well, obviously to God. Psalm 51. David said against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So there needs to be this confession to God because he has sinned against God in many ways. But also, Matthew 5, 23 through 25 says that if your brother has ought against you, go to your brother and you seek to be reconciled. And I believe the Bible lays precedent for confessing our sins even to other people. Well, who do you confess it to? Anyone who's been hurt by it. Confession of sin should be as broad as the people who are hurt by the sin. R.C. Sproul, in his book, Discovering the Intimate Marriage, says, when people start doing their own thing, he talks about people who say, it's only my business, nobody else's business, so why should I confess it to anybody else? Why should I let anybody else know? And they say it's a private thing. Well, he says, when people start doing their own thing with no consideration for anyone else, other people will get hurt. I saw the corporate dimension of marriage very vividly in a counseling case involving an affair. I talked with the offending husband and his other woman. They told me what they were doing was their own business and nobody else's. I disagreed. In the course of that particular case, I was involved with counseling exactly 28 people. I counted them. I had to deal with the two already mentioned and the injured wife. But it didn't stop there. I became involved with parents of all three of them, as well as grandparents, children, and other relatives. Close friends of all three came to me for help in dealing with the situation. A lot of people suffered from just two people's own business. The affair was not a private thing. Marriage involves many more people than simply the husband and the wife. The marriage is contracted not only in the presence of God, but in the presence of human witnesses who are called to testify or bear witness to the truth. All of our statements come under the scrutiny of God. 
We are warned in the New Testament that every idle word we speak will be brought to the judgment. If God takes our idle words seriously, how much more seriously does He take those words spoken with forethought? And if He takes our normal statements seriously, how much more seriously does He take our promises especially when those promises are raised to the level of the formal vow as they are in the marriage ceremony. All of our vows and oaths come under the scrutiny of God. And so the adulterer, sexually immoral person ought to confess, of course, to God, but also to other people. Now, Jay Adams has given some good guidelines as far as this matter of confession. I'm going to talk more about that tomorrow, but let me just say... Uh, That Jay has said, and I think he's right, that secret sins should be confessed to God only, private sins to the injured person privately, and public sins to those who have been affected by it. And so the confession ought to be as broad as those who have been affected by it. So to whom shall you confess? Well, there is the way I'd approach it. The second question is, why should this person confess? Why should this person disclose? what he or she has done to other people. Well, while sin is primarily committed against God, other people were hurt by it. And so, since they were hurt by it, they ought to be asked for forgiveness. In the case of the mate, the Bible describes the relationship between the husband and wife as becoming one flesh. And if they're one flesh, to keep something from his wife would be like keeping something from himself in a violation of that one flesh relationship. And two, there ought to be confession because the adulterer broke vows. We already mentioned that from R.C. Sproul. When that person was married, he promised in most church weddings that he would be faithful to the mate. He promised two things. One, love and the other, loyalty. He made those vows. He vowed to be faithful in plenty or in want. To be faithful in joy or in sorrow. To be faithful in sickness or in health. Now, these vows, sickness, health, plenty, want, joy and sorrow, obviously don't cover all of the circumstances of life. They are merely examples The kind of commitment that a person gives is a total comprehensive commitment in terms of love and faithfulness. And these vows are not merely made as a declaration of present love and present fidelity, but they are made as a declaration of commitment to future love and commitment and fidelity. And the Bible treats covenant breaking very, very seriously. And since he has broken his covenant, not only with God, but with others, that confession should be made to others as well as to God. Still further, the confession should be made because relationships must be built on truth and honesty. Ephesians 4.25 says, Put away falsehood, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we're members one of another. And if the husband and wife are ever to have a good relationship, it must be based upon truth and honesty. Then too... Real confession and disclosure is an evidence of genuine repentance. 
And if a person is unwilling to confess to his wife or others who have been hurt by his adultery, I have to question the sincerity of that person's repentance. And I'm going to talk more about repentance tomorrow. But confession, a willingness to disclose and confess, indicates genuine repentance. And more than that, confessing to the other person is important because the other person often already suspects. I've had people say, well, I knew something wasn't right. I wasn't sure exactly what was going on. But I knew something wasn't right. And then others have said, well, I knew it all along. And so uh, the uh, confession is important because the other person suspects, or even if they don't, they may find out about it in the future, and then the relationship will go through a terrible uh, difficulty again. Another reason is adultery has involved other sins. See, adultery doesn't come alone. It involves a lot of other sins. It almost always involves the sin of deception, misuse of finances, neglect of marital responsibilities and even family responsibilities and other responsibilities. It involves hypocrisy. It involves subjecting the other person to physical risks. Because every person that one person has had sex with is really in bed with the couple when they're having sex. When you have sex with a person, you have sex with every other person with whom that person has had sex. And so, you know, if the husband is fooling around, uh, who knows what kind of disease he may be, have picked up. And I've had that happen in my counseling Not too long ago, a couple came, and uh, the wife didn't know that for years her husband had been going to see prostitutes. And finally she found out. And they came for counseling. And one of the first things I advised them to do was, first of all, for him to go and get a physical exam, and for her to go and get a physical exam, and guess what? Both of them had sexually transmitted diseases. He had passed it on to her, had gotten it from one of his prostitutes. And then another reason why the confession must be there is because you can't work on other issues in the relationship unless there's openness and honesty about the problems. How much should be confessed? It should be governed by Ephesians 5.3, which says there are some things which ought not to be named among the saints. It should be governed by Ephesians 4.29, which says that our speech should be good according to the need of the moment. That we may build up the other person and minister grace to the other person. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in the next session as well. How should the confession be made? Well, you have an example in Luke 15. When the prodigal came back, he said, Father, started to say it anyway, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Or you have another example of how confession should be made in Psalm 51, with David crying, have mercy upon me. 
These individuals did it without rationalization. They did it without sharing the blame. They did it without minimizing. And I believe that the confession should be made, if possible, in person. Matthew 18, 15 says that if your brother sins against you, you go to your brother. Matthew 5, 23 through 24, 26 says that if you have ought against your brother, you go. And so I believe the confession ought to be made personally. And then when should the confession be made? Well, Matthew 5, 26 says you reconcile to your brother quickly. And I believe as quickly as possible, the disclosure or confession ought to be made. So, one of the issues you deal with is a matter of disclosure. Now, obviously, as I've already intimated, the purposes for disclosing the adultery isn't merely informational. It isn't merely to let the other person know you've done it. It is to acknowledge your sin and ask for forgiveness. And again, I'm going to talk more about that in the next session. But I remind you of the example of David in Psalm 52, 51, when he confessed, he didn't merely tell God what he had done. He asked for forgiveness. He didn't merely say, I'm sorry. He acknowledged he had done wrong and asked God to cleanse him. And the same was true with the prodigal son. He didn't merely say, Dad, I want you to know what I did when I left home. I'm really sorry. No, he said, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And so there needs to be this confession and asking for forgiveness. A third issue that you'll often confront is the third party, the relationship with the third party. And many times in counseling I've come when they've still had some kind of relationship with the third party. And I believe that if you're going to rebuild a relationship, they've got to break off all relationships with that third party. They've got to do what Joseph did in Genesis 39. He ran away from Mrs. Potiphar. And I don't believe he ever went back in that house again. He just avoided her. He left his coat behind and went. Now, when you ask some men to break off all relationships with a third party, you sometimes get something like this. I don't want to hurt her. We're good friends. I mean, we're good friends. And that really hurt her. Or they say, she needs me. You don't know how much she needs me. And they put it on an altruistic basis. Or if I break it off, she's going to commit suicide. I just know she'll commit suicide. She's threatened suicide. And I don't want that on my conscience. Or they'll say, I led her to the Lord. (laughs) And we laugh at that, but it's true. I've had a number of men who have told me that. I led her to the Lord, and it's my responsibility. To lead her on. (laughs) Let me finish. (laughs) In the Lord. I mean, they give spiritual reasons for doing it. Or, I have an obligation to her because she's given up a lot for me. She's left her husband. She's forsaken her parents. And you want me to break off all relationships with her? Yes. And in general, 
You're wasting your time until the relationship is completely break, broken off. Now, probably, if the person is going to break it off, you better not send him to do it alone. It may not even be best to have that person meet with the other person. If he does meet with the other person, he ought to do it having some other godly person with him. It may be best to write a letter. Have the person compose the letter, present the letter to you. You go through the letter, make sure he said the right thing and that he really means what is being said. Or you do it, he does it over the phone with his wife standing there or somebody else standing there and you role play it. Now, what are you going to say to her? And you make sure that he says what he ought to say and break off the relationship completely. Another issue that you'll often face is this matter of deceptive patterns. In most cases, the adulterer has become deeply involved in a deceitful lifestyle. In fact, the adulterer probably has become very good or bad at lying. It's interesting, when David writes Psalm 32, a psalm about confessing sins, and probably the sin of adultery was involved, he said, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, is David suggesting that during this period of time, when he was covering his sin, he was lying about it, and he knew he was lying, and he had to bring the sin of lying and deceit to God. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputes not iniquity, and in whose spirit is there no deceit. It's so good to have to stop lying and being deceitful. Now, probably... The adulterer has lied to God. Psalm 51, David says that God desires truth in the inward part. And that's a psalm which is connected with his sin of adultery. And he says, oh Lord, you desire truth in the inward part. Why did he say that? Well, because God does. But he also said it, I think, because David knows that in his heart he had been lying. Probably the adulterer has lied to God. He's professed to love God often when he doesn't. Many of them keep up a ruse as far as the church is concerned, singing the choir, some preach, some teach, pretending to be spiritual while all this is going on. They've lied to themselves. James 1.16 says to the person, don't be deceived. He's talking in the context of how sin deceives us. And in verse 22, he talks about deceiving yourself. And probably, almost certainly, the person has lied to his mate. In some instances, he's become so good at it that the adulterous affair has been going on for a long period of time before the mate even finds out. And one pastor that came to me for counseling with his wife, and um, his wife one day overheard him on the telephone in his church office. And she just happened to come into the church office. And she heard him whispering sweet nothings or some things to somebody on the phone. And um, she confronted him with it. He said she misheard him. He really hadn't said that. And he denied the whole thing. 
Well, she continued to see things or hear things that she thought were suspicious, and finally they came for counseling, but he still denied it. Two and a half years later, he admitted it. It was going on. Preaching the Word of God. I mean, he just, ooh, spirituality as he sat in my office. I mean, he quoted Bible. He tried to help me to counsel his wife. To make sure she got the point. Now, he was just a paragon of spirituality. But all the while, he was involved in sexual immorality. Adulterers and adulteresses become good at deceiving. Probably the person has lied to other people, if not overtly, at least covertly, by pretending to be one thing, while in reality he's not. And again, I could tell you person after person where this has been true. Well, we've run out of time. Um, or have we? We've got 15 more minutes. Is it, does it go to 10, 15? 15, okay. We haven't run out of time. Scratch that. Another issue you'll have to deal with, just some of you wish that we'd run out of time. <laughs> Another issue, it's okay to smile in this, uh, you know, even though it's 10 o'clock in the morning, it's okay. But I know that some of you are described in that verse in Proverbs twenty-seven fourteen. Remember? It says there that if you uh, bless a man with a loud voice early in the morning... It should be accounted a curse to him. Well, I've got a loud voice, and uh, hopefully I'm blessing you, and so uh, maybe some of you are counting it a curse because I'm waking you up or disturbing you. At any rate, one of the issues you have to deal with is the person's feelings. The adulterer is going to need help in dealing with his feelings. In dealing with his feelings toward the person with whom he has become involved, you know, he still has that romantic Attachment. He just has those warm cuddlies. And very likely you'll have to deal with his feelings toward his mate. Because while he has warm cuddlies toward the other person, he doesn't have warm cuddlies toward his or her mate. And uh, it's just about as attractive to him uh, to think about coming back to his former mate as it is uh, to give him a case of AIDS. I mean, he has bad feelings against it. Now, you'll need to work on a biblical perspective on feelings, which is, he'll need to be assured that the Christian is called to live a commandment-oriented life rather than a feeling-oriented life. We're going to talk more about that tomorrow. He'll need to understand that feelings will follow his desires, his thinking, his choices, and his actions. He doesn't feel good toward his wife because he hasn't had a desire for his wife. He hasn't been thinking well about his wife. He hasn't been making good choices in reference to his wife. And he hasn't been acting well toward his wife. And you cannot think, desire, Choose and act in one way and feel in another way. It's just impossible. I often tell people, you know, the feelings in your life are like a caboose on a train. And if you compare your life to a train, 
The engine on the train of your life is your desires, your thoughts, your choices. The next cars are your actions. And finally back here comes the caboose. The caboose does not pill the train. You get in trouble if you allow the caboose. You don't go anywhere if you allow the caboose to pull the train in your life. You stand still as far as doing what God wants you to do. You think right, you desire right, you choose right, you act right, and you'll feel right. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And your treasure has not been in your wife. Your treasure has been in this other person. You've been living in a fantasy world. There's no way that your wife can compete with this fantasy world. You don't live with her 24 hours a day. You haven't lived with her over a period of time. Your life hasn't been as intertwined with her as it has been with your wife. You haven't faced the problems and difficulties and challenges. You've been living in a make-believe world. And you need to recommit yourself to your wife in terms of your desires, your thoughts, your choices, and your actions. And if you do that, the time will come. When you feel right. But there may be a lag between the time when you think, choose, and act right, and your feelings catch up. And you've got to expect that. So you give them a biblical perspective on feelings. You let them know, as Romans 12.2 says, that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. And the mind involves not just the thought processes, it involves, I think, it's a description of the whole inner man. We think of the mind only as the thought process, but I believe the mind in Scripture, and I've checked this out in looking up Bible verses where the mind does a lot of different things, all of the different things that the inner man does. And so we're transformed by the whole transformation, by the whole renewal of the inner man. In Acts 5, 40 and 41, we have an amazing passage which tells us about the apostles being flogged and ordered not to preach in the name of Jesus ever again. And then they're threatened. And the implications are clear that if you go on preaching in the name of Jesus, you guys are in trouble. Now the next verse says, it's an incredible verse, it's amazing. The next verse goes on to say that the disciples rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer for his name. They are flogged, they are beaten, their lives are endangered, they're told never to talk again about Jesus, and they leave there rejoicing. What are they, some kind of masochists who enjoy pain? No. Why did they rejoice? They rejoiced because they desired nothing else than to exalt Christ. There was nothing that they desired more than honoring Jesus Christ. And they rejoiced because they thought their suffering would be beneficial to the cause of Christ. See, their desire was to honor Christ. And they thought... This was an opportunity to exalt Christ. And since that was their craving, and that was their thinking, and that was their choice, it influenced their feelings. Not too long ago, somebody gave me 
another, um, I don't know what you call it, uh, cartoon. It's not really a cartoon, but I don't know what else to call it, so call it a cartoon. It was um, some frames in which uh, it was depicted how Christians have coped through the ages. In the first frame, it said New Testament Christian. And it pictures a New Testament Christian saying, Lord, give me courage to face this accusing mob. Lord, I want to stand up for you. In the next frame, you have the Reformation Christian. And the Reformation Christian is saying, Lord, help me to declare your truth despite the cost. Doesn't matter what it's cost. Here I stand. I can do no other. And if I have to die standing for the truth, I'll die. That's the Reformation area, Christian. And then you have the 20th century persecuted East European Christian saying, Lord, may we persevere faithfully under these burdens. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be true under these burdens. And then the next frame is 1980s, now the 1990s American Christian and the 19. 80s American, 1990s American Christian is saying, Lord, will you please do something? My Audi has been running roughly lately. I mean, we get all upset when our car doesn't run right. When our wife or when our husband or when somebody else doesn't smile at us or say hello to us or appreciate us the way that we want to be appreciated. Oh, we get all uptight and uh, we think we're being persecuted and we're suffering something miserably and uh, we're living in a day and age where self-fulfillment, self-esteem, doing your own thing, being happy, fulfilled, that's the greatest good in life. And we have to help people to understand that the greatest good in life is not personal fulfillment, personal happiness. If they have to suffer for the sake of Christ in their marriage, they suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. They do what God wants them to do. They're committed to a higher cause, a greater goal, than simply satisfying their own senses, their own pleasures, their own desires. And in working with people who have problems in the area of feelings, we certainly have to do that. Well, one other important issue that I'm going to mention today is the matter of repentance. The counselee needs to help in the area of repentance. All of your efforts to rebuild the marriage will be in vain unless the offendee has genuinely repented. Without it, you may see some temporary improvement, but you won't see lasting change. Recently, I was rereading John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And in that Pilgrim's Progress, there's a section where Christian and Hopeful are discussing why people backslide. Hopeful gives four reasons, and then Christian follows it up with one of his own. The first reason that Hopeful gives for backsliding is, first of all, Though the conscience of such a person is awakened, their minds remain unchanged. Therefore, when the strength of the guilty feelings wears off, that which drove them to be religious ceases. So quite naturally, they return to their former ways again. This is like a dog that is sick from what he has eaten. This is a rather pathetic illustration, but it's a good one. 
As long as the sickness persists, he will keep vomiting it up. He doesn't do this on purpose, but because his stomach is upset. But as soon as the sickness is over and his stomach is soothed, because his desires are not at all alienated from his vomit, he turns around and licks it right back up. So what is written is true. A dog returns to its vomit. Therefore, I think that they are eager for heaven only out of a sudden sense of fear and of the torments of hell. But as soon as this sense of hell and fear of damnation is gone, their desire for heaven and eternal happiness dies also. At that point, they simply return to their former course. Later, Christian says, I think you're close to the mark, for the bottom line is that they need a change in their minds and in their wills. They are like the felon who stands before a judge. He will shake and tremble as he stands before the judge, repenting heartily. Underneath, however, there is the fear of punishment, not loathing, for his offense. This soon becomes evident because if you give the man his freedom, he'll go right back to his criminal activities. If his mind had been truly changed, his actions would have been quite different. And so if you're going to help the offendee to really rebuild his marriage relationship, you've got to work on using biblical means to bring this person to genuine repentance. In Ezekiel 14, 16, God says, Repent and turn from your idols and turn away from all your abominations. Repentance is followed by turning from idols and from abominations. Ezekiel 18, 30 connects repentance with turning away again. God says, Repent and turn away from all your transgressions. In Acts 26 and verse 20, Paul preached that men should repent and turn to God. Repentance involves turning away from and turning to God. And then he says, go on to perform deeds that are appropriate to repentance. And when you're working with an offendee who's been very deceptive, you'll need to work in this area of genuine repentance, that he's not just temporarily Turning, but it's a heart turning away from his idolatry, away from his sin, and to God. And I have seen people again and again who came back, who were not genuinely convicted of their sin before God, who had not really repented of their sin, who were just doing it because somebody was putting pressure on them. The church found out, other people found out, and they didn't like the uncomfortable feeling that they had from others knowing it, and they were pressured back into the situation And because they had not genuinely repented before God, it wasn't long before they were off and doing the same thing again and again. So there you have uh, a little bit of a description of the circumstantial factors that are often involved when a person commits adultery, some of the primary causes, and some of the main issues that um, you'll have to deal with as you try to help people to rebuild their marriage after an adulterous affair. Now, tomorrow we're going to pick up and continue on and talk about uh, what to do with both of these people to rebuild their marriage.